Well, uh, thank you, David. That was one of the most warm, uh, generous introductions anybody's ever had. So thank you for that. Good morning, men. And uh, welcome to Iron Men of God. So you've seen a couple of my really uh, close associates and friends from the past. Um, <clears throat> I'm a Winter Garden product, and in a sense, my dad had a business here called Comfort Control, air conditioning, and then my brother took it over. So wherever you live in Winter Garden, whether it's uh, you've lived there forever, or you bought the home from somebody else, there's a good chance that I've been up in your attic, <laughs> crawling around as my dad's attic rack, rat for a dollar an hour when I was uh, coming up. So there was a, uh, well, first of all, the, the, the topic of, of, of the day here is going to be uh, how to see like a uh, Samaritan. <clears throat> There was a man from Chicago who had a business trip to Orlando in the summer. He made his business hotel arrangement in downtown Orlando. And then he remembered that he and his wife hadn't been on a vacation in a long time. So he thought, wouldn't it be a great idea to have his wife join him at the end of the week and then they could have a little holiday. And so he made a reservation down in the resort area for the end of the week, came to Orlando, uh, finished up his business a day early, and then wondered, I wonder if I can get down to the resort hotel a day early. And he was able to do that, and he checked in. But now, of course, his wife didn't know where he was, and so his battery had died on his phone, so he went down to the business center to send her an email. But he couldn't remember exactly uh, the email address for his wife. And so he got two of the digits sort of, you know, crossed over, mixed up. And so instead of sending an email to his wife in Chicago, he sent an email to a woman in Detroit whose husband had just died. Family came home from the funeral parlor, went into the kitchen. The widow went into the bedroom to boot up the computer to see what kinds of emails of condolence may have arrived. She let out a shriek, passed out on the floor. Family rushes in, and there on the computer screen is this message. Dear wife, I arrived this afternoon, and I'm starting to get settled in. <laughs> Preparing for your arrival tomorrow afternoon. P.S. It's really hot down here. <laughs> Isn't it fascinating how what seem like relatively small errors can have huge impacts, huge consequences? And so uh, what I want to talk to you about here uh, first is that the text we're looking at here where the Samaritan is involved starts uh, with a man basically asking Jesus, what's the most important thing that a man can do in his life? Now, this, this text, this this exchange takes place three places in scriptures. Two times, it's, it's, um, it's uh, Jesus explaining what is the greatest commandment. And in the text that where the Samaritan appears, it's actually uh, a lawyer asking Jesus a question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So what's the greatest commandment? You know, what's, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know, 
What's the most important thing that a man could do in his life? Well, this is one of those places where if you get things mixed up, you're, you're going to be in real trouble. And so uh, Jesus, how many lawyers in the room? Uh, I, don't like to, I don't like to throw lawyers under the bus. I don't like to make jokes that demean people. But lawyers don't ask questions unless they usually know the answers already, right? Well, Jesus must have known that because he said, well, how do you see it? I have a friend who's in the publishing business. He's 15 years younger than I am, and I've been a mentor to him. He wrote me an email one day, and he said, Pat, what's the most important thing that a man can do in his relationship with God? And so uh, I, I wrote him back. I said, who's asking? Because he's a publisher. I wanted to know if it was for his magazine or, or if it was for him. So he wrote back me. And so I wrote him back, and I said, well, how do you see it? What do you think? Well, that's exactly what Jesus asked this lawyer, which is where I got the idea. And uh, so, anyway, we, we had this exchange, had a beautiful lunch, and talked through much of what I'm getting ready to talk to you about. And uh, so, what, uh, just, just out of curiosity, what would you say is the most important thing that a man can do in his relationship with God? Shout it out. What is it? Love him, okay. Love God, right? Serve God. Okay, good. What else? Obey. Obey, Obedience. Okay, what else? Pray along. Pray what? Pray alone. Yeah, like up on the mountain, right? Okay, anything else? What is it? Serving. Okay, got that. Yeah. What is it? Tell others about him. Okay, so look, we've been doing that for less than 60 seconds, so we pretty well have it nailed down, don't we? (laughs) <laughs> so, you know, it's interesting because we learn something in this, this uh, passage that, that uh, Jesus is talking about loving God and uh, loving your neighbor as yourself that we otherwise would not know. Even the first of the great commandments, the Ten Commandments, you know, uh, you, know, you know, love the Lord your God, you know. Um, what, what's the first commandment? No, 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 uh, back in the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other guys before me, right? But even there, it's not like really getting at the meat of the coconut. But, but Jesus said when he's asked, you know, what's the most important commandment? What, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The answer is that you should love God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. That's the first and greatest commandment, and the second is just like it, that you should love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, my gosh. Just look at the intensity that you're asked to bring to the loving of God. Everything within you, every ounce of your energy, the sum of your strength, you're to bring to the loving of God and to loving your neighbor because it's just the same thing. And so the lawyer gives that answer to Jesus. (laughs) But he wanted to justify himself, the lawyer did. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, 
when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and he went away, uh, leaving him half dead. Now, a man. This, this, this passage is so rich in symbolism that we could do a week-long seminar on just this, just this uh, text that we're looking at. But a man, what kind of a man? Well, it's a man who's been attacked by robbers, stripped, beat, and uh, left half dead. But think of the symbolism of that man. That could be almost any man anywhere at any time for any reason who has been broken or abused. It could, be, it could be a young man who's grown up without a father. He's been left half dead. It could be you in the middle of some kind of a, a, a crisis that, that you're in. You have been so beat up in your marriage that you don't know how you go on one more day. Or you might be struggling with, with something that's happening or happened to one of your children or a sibling, it could be something in business where this could be you. You could, be, you could feel like you have been attacked. You're the one who's been attacked. So Jesus has left this guy kind of anonymous because he wants that to be a representation for anybody, anywhere, who for any reason has come under some kind of attack. Now, just the word down there. Isn't that interesting, down? So uh, Jericho is about roughly 17 miles walking distance due east of Jerusalem. So does anyone know why Jesus would say down? Like, you know, down would be south, right? But it's due east. I mean, doesn't this throw a little dispersion on the credibility of Jesus' sense of geography? You, you had the answer? Yeah, yeah, there you go. So just so, so you'll know, every, every doubt you have about Scripture, there, there, is, there is a plausible explanation. This, in this case, it's a reference to change in elevation, not compass points. So it's uh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem High points out at about 2,700 feet. Uh, if you go all the way down to the river, it's about 1,200 feet below sea level. But, so something like 37, 3,800 feet down in elevation. That would be like hiking from the south rim of the Grand Canyon down to the Colorado River, except you're doing it 17 miles instead of 10. So, uh, so yeah, so you've got this guy. Uh, he's been attacked and left for half dead, all right? So this uh, picture is uh, just, off the, <laughs> just off the internet, you know. But this is like the, this is like the, the hiking trail, but there, there are a couple of different ways to get from Jerusalem down to Jericho. But this is, this is kind of like what the train would have been. So there would have been around that corner or maybe, you know, somewhere, anyway, there would have been some robbers, some men who were intent on doing harm. Do you have... You have people in your life, your children have people, your wife have, your associates at work. You, you have people who are intent on doing you harm. There were some people like that, and they attacked this guy, and they beat him, and they stripped him, and they left him half dead. 
all right? Kind of like, kind of somewhere on a road. There's actually a, a museum. There's a museum about halfway between Jerusalem and Jer- Jericho today, a, a plausible location where this might have taken place. You can go there and take a look on, online if you want. So with that in mind, let's continue in our text. So this guy's laying there half dead, and a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Well, you know, that, that was a little tiny little tiny trail there. So, I mean, you know, he had almost, probably had to, who knows, I'm making this up, he may have had to sidestep in order to get around the guy. And then so to a Levite, when he came by and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. So the Samaritan, uh, was, that was interesting because that was somebody that the, the, the Levites and the, the priests and the religious people would have looked down on, okay? Uh, we could talk more about that on another day, but, but he took pity on him. This is the word that also translates compassion. So in, uh, in uh, Matthew 9.36, Jesus, uh, he looked on the crowds, and he had compassion on them because or he had pity on them because he saw that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And this is the same compassion, the same Greek word that's used when, in, 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 for, for those of you who are familiar with the, the, uh, the parable of the, uh, the, the lost son, the prodigal son, when the son comes back, before the son ever says anything, the father sees his son and he has compassion on him. And he runs to his son, and he throws his arms around him, and, and he kisses him, uh, kisses him on, on the neck. He's slobbering on his neck. Have you ever had anybody do that? You, have you ever had a parent do that? I was in Russia one time, right after the wall came down on a, on a ministry thing, and this father was following uh, behind me and uh, pleading with me in broken English. He was a boiler worker or something like that. And his son was there too. And his son had become a prodigal. And, and, uh, and uh, we had this beautiful discussion. And I just remember, nobody's ever done that before, but he embraced me. He started kissing me all over and slobbering on my neck. I had spit on my neck. It was just unconditional love. And so this, this uh, Samaritan, he had that, that same compassion, that same pity on this, this guy. So I uh, mentioned to Ryan before we got started today that you should always be prepared to do your talk even if there's no PowerPoint, you see, because that will sometimes uh, uh, happen. However, in this particular case, I'm hoping that we get it working because there's something really uh, important that I want to show you here in this. So with that in mind, you know, how do you see like a Samaritan? How can you see like a Samaritan? How can you have that kind of compassion? How can you love your neighbor you know, with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, how can you, how can you, how can you, how can you pull that off? 
I <clears throat> want to talk to you about three mindsets. Three mindsets, maybe of a Samaritan, but just three mindsets. Uh, these are, I have these, I have this file called my governing principles. And these three mindsets are right up at the top of, of what I'm trying to do. And the, 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 I'm going to go ahead, and, since we don't have PowerPoint, I'm going to go ahead and give them to you. Oh, it's working? All right, well, let's, uh, all right, well, there we go. So, uh, I don't know. <laughs> go back one. Did we do this one? We didn't do this? Okay, so Jesus continues, which of the three do you think was a neighbor then to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him, right? And Jesus said, go and do likewise. So how then do you see like a Samaritan? We've covered that. And next, these three mindsets, I'm going to give you a little bit of a dashboard here, and then next. So the first uh, uh, gauge on this dashboard. So for me, <clears throat> um, uh, by the way, this is the best I've got. This is my TED Talk, all right? So uh, I hope you like it because if you, don't, if you don't like this, I'm in real trouble. I mean, like, I mean, this is like the result. This has just came into focus finally for me earlier this year. I mean, I've been developing little pieces of it, but I finally put it together as a, as a dashboard with three gauges on my dashboard. So in every situation, when I'm encountering someone, not perfectly, you understand, but the, the idea is every time I am engaging someone and they're asking me to do something or we're thinking about doing something or there's a problem that has to be solved or a decision that has to be made, or a priority that has to be set, or something that has to be left undone. I'm asking three questions. I'm looking at I'm looking at my dashboard, and I have three gauges on my dashboard. And so I'm going to I'm going to give you the best of what I got. I told my wife, put on my tombstone. It's a shame he had to die. He was just starting to get the hang of it. So anyway, <clears throat> gauge number one is the mindset of a son, the mindset of a son. The verse, this is my life verse, 1 Corinthians 16, 14, do everything in love. Do everything in love. Jesus said, all men will know you are my disciples if you perfect your theology. Should you try to perfect your theology? Well, of course you should. But Jesus said, that's not how people are going to know you're my disciples all men, all people, everyone will know you are my disciples if you do what? If you love one another. Peter said, above all else, love each other deeply, for love covers over what? A multitude of what? Sins. Love is the most powerful force in the world. And so, anyway, I made this my life verse actually just last year after I had a different life verse for like over three decades. So the, the, the principle is by our deeds will our love be known. I mean, honestly, if we don't 
act out, do things in love, then how does anybody know that there is love? Anyway, so the question then that when I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do on something, you know, the question is, what would love do? It's just a real simple thing, okay? What would love do? So that's, okay, so somebody's bringing me a problem. We have a, a, a staff member who uh, has done something. They need to be uh, called on the carpet, let's just say. And so I look up at the first gauge on my dashboard, and it says, uh, okay, the mindset of a son is to do everything in love. Okay, and then the question is, okay, well, what would love do in this situation? Um, your teenager is screaming at you because you won't let them use the car. Okay, what would love do? What would love do? Okay, and then the second gauge is the mindset of a steward. So we have the mindset of a son, and then we have the mindset of a steward. And so this is the second gauge on my dashboard. Is this any good? Tell me if it's good, because if it's not, I'm going to retire. Uh, okay, all right. Okay, so the verse here is 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. Now it is required that whomever has been given a trust must be found or prove faithful. Faithful. Notice that it's not, now it is required that those who have been given a trust must be successful. All right? Should you want to be successful? Of course you should want to be successful. But you can't control that outcome. Now, this word trust, it's, uh, it's the word from which we get, uh, like, house manager, manager of a house, stewardship. So it's, you've been given something to steward. It literally means something to steward, a trust. So it's the mindset of a steward. And if you have been given something, if you have been given a, a, a business or investments or whatever it is, uh, and, and or uh, certain spiritual gifts as you're trying to figure out, what do I do with these gifts? The principle is, is that our job is to be faithful, not to produce a particular outcome. This is like a core principle at Man in the Mirror. All of our staff people know this. We have like 100 staff. And uh, our job is to be faithful, not to produce a particular outcome. Now, we're going to work like crazy to get the results we think God wants us to get, but so many people end up feeling like they're complete losers because we live in a performance-based culture, and if you don't perform, you don't get the reward. If you don't perform, you're a nobody, and that's not the way it works in the kingdom of God because Jesus says, well done, good and successful servant. No, he said, well done, good and faithful servant. Faithfulness is the test, not success. God does not call us to produce a particular outcome. He calls us to be faithful. And so the question, the second question on my, on my second gauge on my dashboard, when I have something that I'm trying to figure out, what am I supposed to do next? Okay, well, what would love do? And second question, what does faithful look like? What does faithful look like? Because I want to be found faithful. I want to be successful. But more than that, I want to be found faithful. I, I was talking with our CEO, Brett Clemmer, recently, and, and uh, he, he was talking about the concept of legacy. I don't really care uh, about the idea of leaving legacy in terms of, of, of contribution or accomplishment. Who cares? I mean, I mean the, the, the best-selling single... Recording artist of all time is Elvis Presley. 
right? How many people remember Elvis Presley? I mean, the only people who remember Elvis Presley are the people who are old enough to remember Elvis Presley. Anybody that's younger than that don't remember Elvis Presley. You probably sing like Elvis Presley. Yeah, yeah, you sing like Elvis Presley. I know you. I know you. So anyway, so the point of all that is, I don't know what, I don't know what all the point of that is. Anyway, what is, the, the point is, is that I want, I, I, and I told Brett, I said, I, I want to be remembered more for my character than my contribution. And, and that's something that I can be responsible for, my character. And so faithfulness is at the very core. Faithfulness is at the very core of character. There's some other things we could talk about in another day. All right, so then gauge three. So we have gauge one is the mindset of a son. Gauge two is the mindset of a steward. And gauge three is the mindset of a servant. You notice how that works like it's really cool, you know. And that's right out of the Bible. You know, I'm not using... Man words, I'm using Bible words like son, steward, servant. Like, that's pretty cool, you know, the way it works like that. All right. So the verse for this is Jesus is telling this little story about this guy, this landowner, comes in from the field, and he says, he's not going to tell his servants, you know, you know, sit down with me and have dinner. He's going to say, hey, you make me dinner, all right, and then you can eat. And then he goes on in Luke 17, 10, he says, so you also, talking to his disciples, that would be us, when you have done everything you were told to do, you should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. And so, notice there's a progression here. Son, oh, I'm a much-loved son. I'm God's much-loved son. I'm the brother of Jesus. I'm the friend of God. That's good. I'm an adopted son. That's, that's good. But it's, notice the progression. It's stirred. Okay, well, I'm a much-loved son, but I have something to do, too, you know. Uh, and that's to be faithful. But then notice the progression here. I'm also a servant. And a servant, Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That's not the, that's not the, the way you open, like uh, sharing how somebody can become a Christian, right? That comes later, right? That comes later, right? So, so here's the principle. The chief test of a servant is whether or not you're willing to be treated like one. Are you willing to be treated like a servant? Right? And so, so most people, this is what I've discovered over the years, maybe you would agree, most people are, when they get into a situation, they're asking, okay, well, what do I want? You know, what do I, what do I want? What do I want? What do I want out of this marriage? What do I want out of this business deal? You know, what do I want out of this Bible study or this speaker group? What do I want? But a servant is asking a different question. A servant is asking not, what do I want? A servant is asking, what does the master need? So the third gauge on my dashboard, what does the master need? What would love do? What does faithful look like? What would the master need? What does the master need? And so if some of you want to just take a screenshot of that, I, I decided just to pull it all together. <laughs> That's a pretty crude dashboard, but maybe I can get somebody to clean this up and make it into something like really cool, like into a little, 
I was thinking like a little wallet-sized card, you know, with these questions on it. You know, a guy could pull out the card. And so I'm going to hand them all out to you imagination-wise here today, a little figuratively. I'm handing you all out this little kind of card here, and you put it in your wallet. And you, when you have a situation you don't know what to do, you pull that out and say, okay, well, okay, well, what would love do? What does faithful look like? What does the master need? So when I I, 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 grew, I grew up in a home, in, in my home, how are we doing on time? I haven't been watching time. I've been going for what? What time is the trap door, what time does the trap door open up? Seven minutes, okay. So, uh, I grew up a broken boy, all right? So, I never heard, now I'm not saying these things never took place. I'm just saying that I have no recollection of these things ever taking place. And so, even if they did take place, uh, it's noteworthy or striking that I still, to this day, have no recollection of ever hearing these, anybody ever saying to me, I believe in you, I love you, or I'm proud of you. So uh, I love my dad, I love my mom, but my dad was abandoned when he was two years old, the youngest of six children, uh, the youngest of four children. My dad went to work when he was six years of age. My dad could never remember a time when he didn't work. He had two jobs at the age of six. With his older brother, he got up at 3 a.m., they worked a bread truck, and then had a paper out. Burn retardy slipped to school, and so my dad could never remember a time when he didn't work. And he was, his work ethic was incredible. He's the, 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 I've never met anybody who had more integrity than my father. He's, he's, a, he's a great man in, in many ways, but um, when my mother died... Um, I didn't feel anything. I didn't cry. I didn't experience any emotion. I thought it was a little strange, right? It is a little strange, right? So I, I went to see a counselor, and, I, and that counselor helped me unpack the, the uh, father and mother uh, wounds, if you will, that I'd never been able to, to put into words. So when I became a Christian, because um, I grew up in a Christian home that didn't know Christ, does that make any sense to you? Yeah. When I, when I did become a Christian, I thank God that he, he allowed me to, 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 to go back through the family, uh, help my mom and dad uh, make deathbed professions of faith in Jesus. Uh, they probably thought they were Christians, you know, because they had poured themselves into fertilizer sales and bake sales and rummage sales and things like that, and thinking that's what it meant to be a good Christian, you know. Um, but they did put their faith in Jesus. I have a brother. Uh, so I, I'm a high school dropout. You know, just think about what's going on at home to get a high school dropout. My next brother, he's a high school dropout. He dies of a heroin overdose. Figure, figure that one out. Uh, next brother never held a job for more than six months until he was 50 years of age. And my youngest brother is a recovering alcoholic, drug addict, and divorced. And so, and by, by my dad just never saw it coming. My mom never saw it coming. So when I be, became a, 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 a Christian, all of this stuff that we're talking about here, love, loving God, loving it was kind of like totally foreign. But here's the thing. There were some young guys 
So one day I, w- I wake up. My wife wanted me to be a Christian. I, I, I lied to her, convinced her I was. I, I tricked her into thinking that I was a Christian because I wanted to marry her. I think she wanted to be tricked too, but anyway, that's another story. <laughs> but we got married, and it was very clear within a couple weeks of our wedding, we had an ambiguity of terms about, about what I meant to be a Christian. And so after uh, a few months of that, she, she stopped talking about it. She stopped pushing me. She, she got real good emotional intelligence, and, uh, but started to pray. And one day I woke up and, on a Sunday morning and said, why don't we go to church today? And uh, here's the thing. I was the man on the side of the road. I was the man who had been attacked, stripped, beaten, left half dead. And uh, I was so broken, uh, I didn't know what to do, where to turn. But when I reached out for the front door of that church that Sunday morning and opened the door, there were some men in that church who had thought about the possibility that a young guy like me might walk through the front door. And they were so ready for me. They were like special forces, Delta Force, SEAL Team 6, special covert black ops. Well, actually, they were like, you know, accountants and, you know, uh, insurance sales with people like that. But anyway, with big smiles on their faces. But man, were they intentional. And, and they took me under their wings. They were the Samaritans for me. They understood, they understood that if I say I love God and I don't love you, actually, first says in First John, you're a liar. <laughs> it actually says that in First John. Anyone who claims to love God yet hates his brother is a liar. So anyway, these guys loved me. So as I wrap up, I'm going to, that's it. That's the talk. But there's one more step. Um, there's somebody that you know who is that man. Now, it might be you. And if it's you, speak up and let the brothers know. If you are, if you are healthy, then somebody in your life is that man on the side of the road, especially younger guys. And I know you're trying to get uh, older, more young guys involved, and we are too, and everybody is. Man in the Mirror, two, uh, two and a half years ago, we started Mirror Labs. Mirror Labs. Uh, we have a 37-year-old uh, executive director, former pastor, former missionary. He understands the language and the thought forms of the millennial generation. We are, and, and, and we have spent over two years, over two years, researching why younger men are unchurched and dechurched, why they're still churched, and why they will rechurch. And at this point, uh, it sounds a little immodest, but I think we know as much as anybody in the nation about how to connect with younger guys the guys that have been beaten up by the culture, laying on the side of the road half dead. And so we are uh, launching this uh, initiative, an initiative called 10,000 Spiritual Fathers. And uh, David and team would like to make that opportunity available to you in case you might have a passion 
to help some young guy like me. So on your table is a flyer and a business card. The flyer, one for everybody. Let me encourage you, pick it up and hold it up just so I can see if make sure everybody's got one. Anybody, anybody need one? Everybody got one? Okay. You can look that over, but the bottom line is <clears throat> we, we are doing, a, we're rolling out the pilot project right now in seven cities, uh, Orlando, Naples, Indianapolis, um, San Diego, Houston, and, uh, anyway, uh, seven cities across the country. We're rolling out the pilot for this 10,000 spiritual fathers. So if, if you would like to be a spiritual father, a mentor, a disciple, or a coach, whatever you want to call it, to a younger guy. So if you're 40 years old or older, and you would have an interest in helping a younger guy, the first thing that just came to your mind, I'm, I already know what it is. I'd love to do that, but I'm terrified. I don't know what to do, don't know what to say, don't know how to do it. So we're having a one-day orientation uh, to equip guys to understand what's involved. Uh, it's, a, it's a come and see thing. It's not like you sign up, sign a contract, and have to do it. It's a come and see kind of a thing. It's an orientation. You can take a look at it there. There's a QR code. You, uh, how many of you know what QR stands for? Ha, ha, I got you. Quick response code. I just looked it up. I thought that was pretty, I thought that was pretty interesting. I thought to myself, I bet, I bet nobody knows what QR stands for. I was right. So anyway, uh, there's a QR code there. You can uh, register if you want. It's going to be on Saturday, September 10th. Uh, it's going to be out in Ovidas. So that means a, a little bit of a hike for you. But, but we would like to invite you to join us uh, from the very first day that God called me out of business. I'm a broken-down real estate developer. Uh, from the very first day uh, God called me out of business uh, into ministry, my passion has always been singular, a wholesale spiritual revival and awakening in America. A wholesale, across the board, spiritual revival and awakening, awakening in America. Let me ask you a question. Can you picture any scenario in which we could have a spiritual awakening in this country if men were not involved. Do, do we need to make sure that women are involved? Yep. Do we need to make sure children are involved? Yep. Do we need to make sure religious leaders are involved? Yep. Do we need to make sure that you get the idea? But nothing will have any sustainability this is Family Systems Theory 101, and then I'm done. If you have a family system that's broken, dysfunctional, and you take, uh, take a child out and really help the child through counseling and, and then reinsert that child into an otherwise unchanged family system, you know what the chances of that change lasting for that child are? Almost zero. But if you take the man out of that family system and you help him get his life straightened out, and then you reinsert him into the family structure, can you guess what happens? Uh, in, in the vast majority of, of cases, you have a transformation, not only in the man, but in the family. And if you can get the man right, you can get the marriage right. If you can get the marriage right, 
you can get the family right. If you can get the family right, you can get the church right. If you can get the church right, you can get your community right. And if you can get your community right, who knows? We might even see a spiritual revival and awakening in our lifetime. Thank you very much.